Good morning. You can open your Bible to page 986. And today's reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord, Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I'm assuming we've, uh, we've all been encouraged to have role models in our lives, uh, people to whom we look to uh, as examples for how to live. Uh, I'm sure you've given some thought over the course of your life uh, who might be a good example for you to follow as an individual believer. But I wonder, what about us as a church? So do we have any role models? Do we have any entire congregations to whom we can look as an example of what it is to live as the church. Well, into this conversation, the New Testament does in fact hold out to us examples of church role models. And uh, into, this, into this conversation, we have <clears throat> this small, brand new, uh, from the outside, rather unimpressive church in kind of the northeastern part of ancient Greece in this place called Thessalonica. The New Testament would hold out to us the church of the Thessalonians as an example of what it means to live faithfully as we wait for the Lord. So today, as Jonesy said, we kick off a few weeks in this new book, and it's Paul's first letter to this brand new church. It's the letter of 1 Thessalonians. You see there, as Noemi just read, he begins the letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, so there's three authors, so to speak, of this one letter, Paul being the main one, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So begins one of the, the happiest, uh, most joy-filled letters of the New Testament, written to this exemplary church by the Apostle Paul. So as we, as we jump into this new book for a few weeks, it's probably helpful for us to get a 30,000-foot view of what's happening in the New Testament. So we've been in Leviticus for a few months, or I guess a month and a half or so. We're jumping back into the New Testament for the summer. 
So let's think about what's going on as we jump into the New Testament. So the New Testament begins with four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What we see in these New Testament accounts is that there is one eternal God who exists in three persons. So the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the gospel, what we see is that God the Father, in his love, has a plan to create a new and holy people who will live with him in holiness forever. This is actually the reality to which the book of Leviticus was pointing, right? That the Lord God in himself is holy. He's calling a people to be set apart to himself as holy. And this is what he's doing in the New Testament now. He's saving them from the penalty of their sins to be set apart for him and with him forever. To accomplish this, the Father has sent his Son in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus has come in the incarnation. He's laid down his own perfect life as a perfect final sacrifice for the sins of his people. So again, you remember in the book of Leviticus, there are these these sacrifices of atonement that have to be made over and over again. In the New Testament, there's one final perfect sacrifice, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. And now those who trust in, the, the people who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, these are Christians, and they become the church. They are, as Paul says here, the church who is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I just love this conception of what the church is right from the beginning of this letter. To be the church means that you're in the Father, you have God as your Father, and you have Jesus as your Savior. There is no other church. You move on from the Gospels into the book of Acts. In Acts, you see the resurrected Christ has empowered his people with the Spirit to spread the good news of salvation to people from all nations. So in the New Testament, the men who are gifted and tasked to lead out this frontline spread of the gospel are called apostles. So we have Paul, who's writing as an apostle. Apostle simply means one who's sent, a sent one. That's an apostle. So these apostles, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They take the gospel and they take this message further and further out into the nations. They, they preach, the Spirit moves, and new churches full of redeemed people who have trusted Christ, who are baptized into the name, they spring up all over the known world. Uh, looks, we sp- might have a, a map of that. Did we have that? So here we have a map of uh, kind of the spread of this gospel to the, known na- to the known world in this early time. This is a, a map. You can't see all the details, but it's a map of Paul's missionary journeys. They're documented for us in the book of Acts. Wow, we zoomed. Dave, that's high. Th- there you go. All right, so, so you see there on the right side, the gospel is beginning, <clears throat> takes root in Jerusalem. It spreads up north into Antioch, makes its way west. That's uh, modern-day Turkey. Some of the names you might be familiar with from the New Testament, you see things like Tarsus, Iconium, Derby. Uh, Myra, Miletus, all these different places. So Paul, he's accompanied at different times by various co-workers, sometimes people like Silas. So Silas is the same name as Silvanus, what we have here at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. Timothy, they go out. Uh, Paul goes out three separate times, actually, until he's taken prisoner and then taken finally to, to Rome. And in each of these journeys, he's taken the gospel deeper into the Gentile world of the Roman Empire. So you see that kind of gospel movement north and west, north and west, that way. In these journeys, he heads into what is modern-day Greece, what was known then as Macedonia. This is where the city of Philippi is located. So we have another New Testament book, Paul's letter to the Philippians, from which we've already read. 
We read about this account in Acts 16. So maybe you've heard of Lydia. So Paul and the other apostles go out to a place to pray outside the city of Philippi. They preach, to the, go- preach the gospel to a bunch of women who were there. Lydia believes, becomes, uh, becomes a believer, becomes a cornerstone of the church in Philippi. Paul and his buddies are imprisoned in Philippi. This is where we have this miraculous prison break. Uh, the, the prison guard who's been tasked to hold them tight, not let them go, is, is suicidal after the prison break. He's about to kill himself. They preach the gospel to him. He believes, becomes a part of the church in Philippi. This is the stuff that's happening in the book of Acts. After Paul and Silas leave Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey, they find themselves a little bit further west in a well-known, prosperous, religious Uh, not in a Christian sense, but in a pagan sense, Greco-Roman religious sense, this city called Thessalonica. So you might see that. So we're up here now, kind of the northwest quadrant of the map there. It's a place called Thessalonica. You can take that down. This uh, This is the account we read from Acts 17. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 17, you get this account of the birth of the church there. Listen. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So in Thessalonica, the apostles are following kind of their usual routine when they come to a new city. Uh, They find a a local synagogue where the Jewish scriptures are preached and taught. So this is a place where you'd expect to hear the teaching of the monotheists, the one who believe in Yahweh as their God. The apostles, Paul and Silas, in this occasion, they take up courage. And looking at the scriptures, that is what we know as the Old Testament, they teach about the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And they reason with the people, what? What's their conclusion from the Old Testament? They conclude that Jesus is him. Jesus is the long-expected Messiah of whom they've been reading in, the, in their scriptures. And what's the response to this announcement that Jesus is the Savior? There is, all throughout the Old Testament and here in Thessalonica, there is antagonism and there is acceptance. There is belligerence and there is belief. Always these two responses. We, we see some of this. We see this acceptance of the message there in verse 4. Look there. Acts 17, 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So from a, a wide swath of demographics, people are believing. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have men and women. They're believing, they're accepting the message. Jesus is the Christ. But in Thessalonica, there's also antagonism. Look at verses 5 through 9, Acts 17 again. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So evidently, Jason was showing hospitality to the apostles. They go to his house searching for the apostles. They don't find them, but they find Jason. Verse 6, when they could not find them, that is the apostles, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, 
Jesus. And the people of the city and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money, taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's a bit of a violent scene. It's not uncommon in, in Acts. So the Jews, they, they don't attack the apostles themselves because they can't find them evidently, but they do attack the people who are showing hospitality to them. In fact, the, the attacks escalate so badly that verse 10 tells us that the apostles are actually forced to leave the city before they can do any building up of this church. Verse 10, it says, the brothers, that is, speaking here of the apostles, the, the brothers immediately, or excuse me, the brothers there in Thessalonica, they sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So this church is born, Thessalonica, some are believing, Jew and Gentile are believing, men and women are believing, but the apostles are forced to leave. There's no discipling, uh, there's no Bible studies, there's no hermeneutics classes. Here's the picture. So the church in Thessalonica, it's like this, it's like this wonderfully beautiful flower that has somehow sprung up and blossomed in the middle of a hurricane. There's no one seemingly to protect or care for it. To switch the metaphor that Paul uses later on in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is like, is like a mom who has just given birth and is ready to nurse, but instead she's forced to, to kind of leave her infant on somebody else's doorstep. The church in Thessalonica, it's like a, it's a baby left alone in the elements. Throughout the rest of the letter, we'll see, but it, this just rips Paul's heart out, what's happened in Thessalonica. Listen to the way he speaks later on. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I think there are times where we can read the New Testament, we can read the book of Acts, or maybe we just think about these missionary journeys of the apostles, and we... And we picture them just kind of jumping around from place to place on a whim, kind of unfeelingly. This is not how Paul speaks of his own experience in the book of Acts. According to Paul, he says here, he was torn away from this infant church in Thessalonica. And being physically away, he says, he says we're away physically, but not in heart. So his heart, his affections remain with this church. Paul had a, Paul had a motherly concern for this church that did not die away when he was physically separated from them. In fact, as we go throughout the letter, we'll see that the, the longer he was away, the stronger this affection grew. This is actually how he describes his ministry later on in chapter 2. I would assume you moms know what it's like being away from your babies, don't you? So you struggle, you struggle to leave your babies, and then you struggle to stay away. And once you're away, you're kind of preoccupied with their well-being. Uh, are they being fed? Are they being cared for? Are they sleeping? Are they awake all night? Are they, what's going on? Are they nourished? Is their health diminishing? What's going on? This is, this is the picture that 1 Thessalonians gives for Paul's heart for the church in Thessalonica. He's dying to see them so that he can know how they are, so that he can know how to, how to nourish them in the gospel, how to build them up in the faith, which he hasn't had a chance to do. For whatever reason, he says later on, he's been kept from doing so. So Paul does the next best thing. He sends a trusted partner to check in on this church. This is what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Just kind of doing an overview here. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, when, I could, when we could bear no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. 
And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul's away. He's thinking of this church. So he sends Timothy to check on this precious child, this infant church in Thessalonica, whom he knows is facing all kinds of obstacles in his growing faith. And so Paul is away, and he's just kind of waiting with bated breath. What would, what would Timothy find in Thessalonica? Is the, is the church suffering? Surely they're suffering. Uh, is, the, is the church on its last breath? Is, is the church dead? Was it in vain? Timothy returned to Paul. We have the report, chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and, and reported that you always remember us kindly and that you long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Timothy comes back, and what's the report? The church in Thessalonica is alive. And not only is it alive, it's thriving. They stand fast in the Lord. This is kind of the, you get a picture of kind of the emotional, spiritual roller coaster of an apostle on these early missionary journeys, right? So this is the life of one who's been set apart to preach the gospel and to deliver spiritual children and then to leave them by necessity in great danger into the care and trusting them to the care of the Lord and be kind of anxious for them forever to receive news, how they are. Are they safe in the storm? Are they being tossed? What's going on? What do they need? What can I do? And this is the occasion of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And this is why 1 Thessalonians, which may be Paul's earliest letter, is also uh, maybe Paul's happiest letter. In this letter, it's just, it's just full of gladness. It's full of joy. It's full of affection. It's full of thanksgiving and appreciation, of love and hope. Because this church, which is born in great affliction against all kinds of odds, thrown immediately upon its birth into persecution, is thriving. Paul's gladness, his, gladitude, his gratitude, they're palpable right from the beginning. You can listen again. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. If you're familiar with New Testament letters, you'll realize, you'll recognize a lot, and you'll recognize what's missing from this letter. You notice that Paul doesn't even make the common mention of himself being an apostle here at the beginning of this letter. It's like they don't even need to hear it. They don't they don't need to be reminded of Paul's authority because they see Paul as their mother, as their father. He's, he's not less than an apostle. He's more than an apostle. He's the one who loves and cares for them in Christ. We'll see this more next week. He goes on, verse 2. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before, before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
Again, if you're familiar with New Testament epistles, these letters, this is, a, this is kind of familiar and expected. That is a, a statement of thanksgiving to begin a letter. Still, we should, we should be really careful not to kind of breeze over these, this common occurrence of thanksgiving, right? It's actually really important to recognize that what we find in this and other letters of the New Testament is an opening, a celebration, not of congratulations, but of thanksgiving. You notice that? In these letters, Paul, Paul does not congratulate the church for something that they've achieved. He thanks God for something that God has achieved. They are a thing. The church in Thessalonica is a thing because God has done something in them. So we've said this is a, this is a really joyful, positive, encouraging, good-hearted letter because this church is doing so very well. This church is thriving. But Paul knows right from the beginning that this is not... It's not that they've accomplished something for which they should be personally congratulated. That's not what you find in the New Testament. No, the work is God's. So Paul gives, gives thanks right from the beginning to God. And I would just encourage us, as the local church, that when things are going well in a local church, and I just say personally that I think things are going pretty well in this local church, we do well to remember that con contrary to what we'll be tempted to think, these good things are not cause for our congratulation. As if we've accomplished something in the church. These good things that you look around and you notice in the local church, if you have eyes to see them, the good gifts, the good seasons, the good relationships, these are cause for thanksgiving. A thanksgiving to God alone. Is there, is there faith in this church? Is there love in this church? Are there people living by hope they have in Christ for all eternity in this church? Are there people enduring suffering really well? Are there people loving and comforting one another in the midst of suffering? Is the gospel being preached? Is the gospel being believed? Is it being held on to? Is it being held out? Well, then let's thank God. Thank God that he would be so pleased to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is what Paul does in this and other letters. He sees good things and he thanks God. And, and how does he give thanks? You notice there, I think this is a really good kind of model for us here at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. How is it that Paul gives thanks? Look there in verses 2 and 3. Paul's thanks, I think we could see, say that it, it is, it's total, it's continual, and it's prayerful. His thanks is total, continual, and prayerful. Verse 2, he says, we pray always for all of you. Paul is grateful to God all the time for everyone in this church in Thessalonica. His praise is continual. You see this in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. We pray const we're constantly mentioning you over in chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this. It's total, it's continual, and it's prayerful. Again, verses 2 and 3, he says, constantly we're mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father. You know, it, I think it strikes me that this letter that's stuffed full of all these good things seen in the church is also a letter that's stuffed full of prayers of thanksgiving and that it's also stuffed full of love and joy. I think this is something that Paul does here that many of us might really struggle with. That is, Paul has connected, uh, he has kept the connection between the, the gifts that he sees on the ground 
and the hand of God. And how has he kept that connection? He, he stuffs his prayers full of thanksgiving. We give thanks always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul looks on the ground. He sees good things that are happening. He knows that that's the hand of God. So he gives thanks to God in prayer. And I think a, a natural question arises for us uh, as a church. I think it arises for us individually. And that is how much of our prayer life is thanksgiving? Uh, think about your own prayer life. How much of your prayer life is thanksgiving? You can maybe start a little further back. Uh, do, you, do you have things for which you could be thankful? Maybe think about that for a second. Uh, are you thankful for the good things that you have? Do you, do you recognize that these good things are actually gifts from God? Do you actually express that thanks to God in prayer? Have you, have you connected have you connected the dots from the, the blessings that you experience in life and in the church? Have you connected them to the hand of God? Have your, has your gratitude made its way into your prayer? Maybe that's one way to, to ask it. Do you have prayers of thanksgiving? You know, I, th I think a lot of us, we, uh, we look at different characters in the Bible. We look at characters like Paul, and we think, man, I, I mean, I want that. I want to be... I want, to be a joy, I want to be a person who's just overflowing with joy. I want to be a loving person. And I think maybe we don't connect it all the time, but I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know a really joyful person in the Bible or in real life who isn't first a really grateful person. Paul knows that, that churches don't just, they don't just spring up out of, out of coincidence. Faith is a gift. Do you have faith in Christ? You've been given a gift by God. Faith is a gift. Love is a gift. Do you love Christ? That's a gift that's been given to you. You've been given a heart that can feel affection for Christ. That's a gift. Do you find yourself in a church that loves Christ and holds the gospel out to you? That's a gift. Paul knows. It's not lost on Paul that these are gifts from God. He knows. He sees it. And he knows. And this makes him totally, it makes him continually, it makes him prayerfully thankful to God. You see this in the reason that he gives for his thankfulness. Remember, uh, so Paul has, Paul has preached, he's planted, he's had to leave, he's worried, he's sent for an update, he's received word, and now having received word, he's responding with thanksgiving. But why is Paul thankful? For what reason is he thankful? Because, because now, having heard Timothy's report, now, Paul says, he is sure of this church's election. You see that there in verse 4? For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul thanks God totally and continually and prayerfully because this church in Thessalonica is the real deal. What he sees and he hears about the church in Thessalonica, it gives every evidence that this is so obviously a chosen and converted people. They're enduring in the midst of great affliction, which is evidence number one of being chosen and persevering in the faith. And, and you can just imagine, right? So you can just imagine how happy this would make Paul. Think about the other churches that Paul's having to deal with in his ministry with all their issues. Right? So you have, you have in places like Corinth, people are getting drunk at communion. 
right? They're sleeping around. They're comparing spiritual gifts. They're leaving Paul to follow other apostles who have, are more impressive with a little bit of different gospel. But, hey, they're, they're really impressive. It's enough to kill Paul, the anxiety that's being induced by all these churches. But, but then there's this little church in Thessalonica. And the report he receives, it's just good. It's so good that he, <laughs> he's just overflowing with thanksgiving. He looks at them and says, brothers, brothers, you're so obviously, you're so obviously a people who are loved by God, chosen by God. I'm sure that God has chosen you. This church in Thessalonica, it's the real deal. They are exemplary. But what makes them exemplary? All right, so what makes Paul so sure? So what is it about the church in Thessalonica that makes it so that Paul can write an entire letter seemingly without rebuke? There are many things we could look at in um, chapter 1, and I'm going to bleed over a little bit into verses 13 through 16 of chapter 2. Many things we can look to that they give us example that are kind of like um, show us that this church is exemplary, that they're chosen by God, that uh, there are reasons that Paul is thankful things that we could aspire to. I just want to mention four things for the rest of our time. So uh, there's a church born in great affliction. And in great affliction, this church is a model of what I see, gospel patience, uh, gospel exertion, gospel reception, and gospel imitation. So there are four things we'll hit for the rest of the time. Patience, exertion, reception, and imitation. Paul is grateful that this church holds out a great example to us, number one, of patience in affliction. Patience in affliction. Maybe you think about your own life and you think, well, I have one, or one of two, those two things, right? Patience or affliction. Maybe you think, I have the affliction part, all right? I got that down. Well, this church has patience in the affliction. We know that on the ground, the daily experience of this church in the world, it was not easy. You see this in various places here in this first part. Chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Over in chapter 2, verse 14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So from the very moment that the, the Christians in Thessalonica received the gospel, they were persecuted. I don't know what your experience has been, but this has not been my experience, but it was theirs. So uh, J Paul says that just as the believing Jews were persecuted by their own countrymen back in places like Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judea, so the believers these in, uh, in Thessalonica are being persecuted in, in the same way by their countrymen. Yet from the very beginning, this new church showed great patience in their affliction. They were not overwhelmed by their trials. They were not bitter at the Lord for them. But how? How is it? Why is this? Seems to me, if we read on, that this church was able to be patient because they, they knew one very important reality really well, and it's this. The church in Thessalonica knew that they had been saved in order to wait. They knew they had been saved in order to wait. I think we see this down in Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says that uh, you, turned, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The church in Thessalonica knew that they had been saved on earth to wait for Jesus from heaven. This was their reality. So Jesus had, had given his life for theirs. Jesus had saved them from their sins. Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus had ascended into heaven. Jesus was saving more and more people through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would come again to save his people, to be with them forever. And what's the church's job in the midst of all that? What's the church's job in Thessalonica? What's our, what's our job here? Verse 9 and 10 says, says it like this. You turn from idols, you serve God, and you wait. You wait for Christ. If anything, we, the church, are a people in waiting. This is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian in the world as it is right now. Your fundamental reality is that what you are right now is not what you soon will be when he comes. Who we will be, we have not yet become. We're waiting for that day. The Christian's glory, our crown, our reward, our fulfillment, our true beginning, our true end, these things lie ahead of us. So we, the church, we have been saved to wait for God's Son to come from heaven. We are a people in waiting. This is why we're calling this short series in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, The Church in Waiting. Because this theme is all over the book. It has all kinds of implications. Today we're looking at the implications for us as members. Next week the church, uh, we'll look at uh, the church's leaders. We'll just keep going. Every chapter of this book actually ends with a reference to this wonderful truth of the end of all time. So, so look, at your, look at your Bibles there with me. So we've already seen this at the end of chapter 1. We have this reference to the coming of Christ. If you look there at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, talking about our boast and our joy, is the, our crown is the coming of the Lord Jesus. At the end of chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, uh, there's this prayer that the Lord make his increase and abound in love for us, that he establish us in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 17, we, he gives this description of what's going to happen to answer questions at the end of time. And the answer is that Christ is going to come and we're going to meet him where he is. At the end of chapter 5, this is, the, this is the benediction that we end with so commonly that the God of peace himself will sanctify us completely and that we may be kept blameless when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory, holiness, the bodily, physical presence of Jesus Christ, everlasting blessing, these are things that are ours. They are ours, but they are ours later. The point for now is this, and I think this is a helpful kind of implication for us as a church, anybody who's feeling any kind of affliction, suffering in this life, which I would assume is all of us. And that's this. Listen, Christian, if it feels like if it feels like you're spending your Christian life waiting for better things to come, if it feels like you're just spending all this time waiting for perfect peace, waiting for justice, waiting for heaven, waiting for Jesus, well, it's because you are. Now is the cross, not the crown. Now is affliction, not glorification. For now, church, the New Testament is so clear. For now... We wait. We wait. And this is what the church in Thessalonica was doing so well. They knew that they had been saved in order to wait. So what did this look like? What can we learn from them? I think this, is, I think this leads to a second 
uh, reason, their exemplary. Second reason why Paul was so sure of their calling and their election. And it's the second thing, and that is their, their exertion in affliction. You could call it their work in affliction. We see this in, in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul hears about this church, from this church, and he's so thankful for the presence of what Spurgeon calls the three sisters in the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. That's what he sees when he hears uh, from this church. Again, in so many occasions, this is all Paul longs to see, right? He hears from other churches. He's, he's thinking, if I could just hear faith, hope, and love, I'd feel really good about this. But notice, it's not just the presence of faith, hope, and love for which Paul is thankful. It's what? It's actually the exertion. It's actually the, the effort created by the faith and hope and love that they're living in. He mentions there in verse 2 and 3, he mentions the work of their faith, the labor of their love, the steadfastness of their hope in Christ. So Paul is grateful that these great gifts of faith and hope and love, that they were producing great works of faith and hope and love. They weren't just saying that they believed. They weren't just saying that they loved one another. They were actually doing it. You see, the gospel had not made this church passive. We can think that. We can think that, okay, my job is to wait. That means I sit back and relax. I kind of, kind of, uh, just kind of fall into this passivity in the Christian life. This is not what's happening in the New Testament church. It's not what's happening in, the, in Thessalonians. This church was dynamic. This church was, was a working, serving church. And it makes sense. Because, because what do times of severe affliction produce for us? They produce opportunities to work, don't they? They produce needs. They produce opportunities to step into one another's needs, to, to shoulder one, an, one another's burdens. They, make, they create opportunities for great works of faith and love and endurance. So yes, the, the church, that church, our church, the church is, is a people in waiting. But what this means for us, for actual church members, is that we take the great gifts of this new faith and this new love, and this new hope that we've been given, and we pray that they might spur us into action. We take this faith that's been given us in this community, and we look around at the people around us, and we look for needs, and we step into those needs by the power of the Holy Spirit. We work in faith. We labor in love. We endure in hope. We help one another endure in hope. One of the things that First Thessalonians is going to teach us, just as clearly as any other book in the Bible, is that our eschatology, that is what we believe about what happens in the end, is the thing that drives, drives our ethics, that is how we live here and now. What, what we're seeing here in, at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians is that since we have a great hope for a great future in Christ, we are free to make great exertions now. We work hard. We labor to comfort one another in affliction, to meet one another's needs so that we help one another along to the finish line. Christ is coming, so help one another get there. In the church, uh, our waiting is not paralysis. I think that's what seems to be what Paul's saying here. In the church, we wait, but we work while we wait. Paul loves when he sees this faith at work, love at work, hope enduring to the end. 
think this brings us to a third reason the church was in special encouragement to Paul. And that is this church is a model of reception in affliction. So they're patient in affliction. Uh, they were working in affliction. We see also that they were a model of reception in affliction. So over and over again in this passage, chapter 1, over in chapter 2, 13 through 16, Paul highlights as a point of prayerful thanksgiving the exemplary way that this church had received the word of the Lord. So when he thinks of this church, he thinks this is a church that received the word the way that it's meant to be received. Look at chapter, look at, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Over in chapter 2 verse 13. He thanks God again. Constantly. We also thank God constantly for this. For what? That when you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. When the church in Thessalonica heard the word of God from his appointed men, they received it in the way that you're supposed to receive it. That is not as the word of men, but as the very authoritative word of God. How, how does Paul know? How does Paul know that they received it as it was meant to be received? Chapter 1, verse 5, you saw it there. It's, it says that this word came to them in power. That is, in the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. And how could they tell? What would you say? How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you know when a church has received the word in the power of the Holy Spirit? What was the evidence of the Spirit? Well, notice at least in Thessalonica, it was not because that this church was all of a sudden bouncing off the walls in the spirit. What was happening? They were experiencing what Paul says there in verse 5 and 6, full conviction. The power of the spirit was coming in this church, and they were experiencing full conviction. He said later on, verse 9 and 10, they were turning from idols to serve the living and true God. How can you tell when the word has come as a true work of power in the spirit? In Thessalonians, it's that there was a genuine conviction of sin and genuine repentance from sin. This is the work of the Spirit. You see sin as it is, you turn from sin to Christ. You know, I'll I just tell you, you know, one of any, any pastor's greatest worries for any church is that there are uh, people in the seats who hear the word of God week in and week out, yet who are never actually convicted of their sin. People who hear weekly about Jesus, but who never actually get around to turning from sin towards Christ. I would just encourage you, 
Think about your own posture towards sin. As we hold out the word of God, do you turn from sin to Christ? As you come to the Lord's table, do you, is that a turning from sin to Christ every week? Let's pray that the power of the Spirit would come. There would be genuine conviction, genuine repentance among us. Notice, though, conviction is not the only evidence of the Spirit's work in the Thessalonian church. How else did they receive the word? Verse 6, it says that they received the word with great joy in the Spirit. So they had conviction in the Spirit, and they had great joy in the Spirit. Again, I think this is another worry kind of on the other side in preaching the gospel, and that is that for some, it's all conviction and no joy. So I'll just encourage you that... Neither is this the full work of the Spirit, to be all conviction all the time, shame all the time, buried under this weight of guilt all the time. Be encouraged from this letter. The true work of the Spirit does not leave a convicted person in their guilt and shame. The Spirit does not leave Christians there. No, the Spirit's work is to bring you to two destinations. The Spirit brings you to conviction, and the Spirit brings you to Christ. That is to joy. Don't leave until you get to Christ. If the Spirit brings you to conviction, if you see your sin as it is, praise God. That's a cruddy feeling. Acknowledge that feeling. See sin as it is, but don't stay in that sin. Let the Spirit finish His work of bringing you all the way to joy, all the way to Christ. This is how the church in Thessalonica had received it, in the conviction of the Spirit, in the joy of the Spirit. If you've been brought to the first, don't stop praying until you get to the second. Ask the Spirit for the joy of Christ. Paul kind of sums up the way that they responded to this gospel message over in chapter 2, verse 13. We saw that. He says that when they heard the gospel and received it, uh, received it, they received it as it really is. That is the word of God. You know, uh, this might be an occasion where it's helpful to Um, Speak to those who might be here this morning who don't know Christ. Let me just ask you this morning, if you're here and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me just ask you, you, will you receive this message for what it really is? Will will you receive what we're saying here this morning as a word not of man, not from man, but a word from God himself? God has brought you here this morning to hear a message. And the message that Christians have is called the good news, the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And what the gospel acknowledges is that you have sin, but God has salvation. You have unrighteousness, and he has righteousness. You have death, and God has life. You have doubt about your eternity, God has assurance of what your uh, eternity could be. You have yourself. This is who you have to save you. You have yourself. I don't know how and in what way you're pursuing that, to be saved from whatever sins you see in yourself, but that's what you have. You have yourself. But God looks at you in the gospel, and he says, I have Christ, and you can have him. The message of the gospel is that if you give God yourself and your sin, He will give you himself. You give your unrighteousness, he gives you his righteousness. This is the authoritative message from God. He will save sinners. Hear the message 
Receive it. Repent. Believe it. Turn to Christ. Receive this morning this message as it truly is. Turn and trust in Christ. Christ went to the cross to save sinners. He can save you. Put your faith in him. The church in Thessalonica has done this. They've received. We saw this in Acts 17. They heard and they believed. So now they're patiently waiting. They're patiently working. They're patiently receiving the word as it really is over and over. It's the word of God. And there's one final thing that encouraged Paul, and that is that this church is a model of imitation in affliction. Imitation in affliction. Look at, look at verse 6 again, chapter 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Over in chapter 2, verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. We, we've talked about how this is an infant church. Uh, it's like a newborn baby. This church in Thessalonica was the newest one on the block. And yet, rather amazingly, Paul speaks about how this church had already, even in its infancy, become a church worthy of our imitation. But in what way? So with all the, with all the modern churches to which we could look as an example, why is this tiny church in this uh, little city worthy of our imitation? Was it, what, what was it about them that the church should imitate? Well, it seems that in this section, chapters 1 and 2, Paul boils it down to this. It seems that the church in Thessalonica was so exemplary because they were willing to receive not only the gospel, but also the cross that comes with it. As long as this church gained Christ, they could lose all other things, and they were losing all other things. I just encourage us as we, as we close, you know, some, some people here are embodiment of this, an embodiment of this very thing. So when, I know we live in the West, to receive Christ here is, doesn't have the same ramifications of our lifestyles as it does other places, in Asia and in the Middle East. But you know, when some of you received Christ, you also accepted a great uh, and obvious cross that you were to bear for a long period of your life. Maybe you received blowback from your family. Maybe increasingly you, you receive job insecurities. Maybe you've accepted the fact that you may not marry. Maybe you've accepted that there were sins that you indulged for a long time that now you're cut off from. Maybe you've accepted and you're living in the, in, in the light that, that there are temptations into which you can't give yourself anymore. There are places you can't go. There are things you can't look at. There are things that you can't imbibe. All these things you've accepted because you've received the gospel. Maybe your life is worse than it would be because you received the gospel. Maybe it's harder than it would be before or than it was before you received the gospel. If that's you, I would just say, that's what it means to be a Christian all over the New Testament. Be encouraged. If you receive the gospel, you must not reject the cross that comes with it. So I'd encourage you, maybe you're feeling particularly that trial or that affliction, that voluntary trial. It's been 
accepted because you accepted Christ? Look at this church in Thessalonica. Look at this church who received the word in much affliction, who suffered many of the same things, and take heart. Take heart. What they knew is that Christ was worth it. The cross is only for a time. Glory will be for an eternity. This life is a breath. Endure. Take hope. Wait well. Receive the word as it really is. We are a people who receive in part now what we will soon receive in full and very soon. The reality is that for now we wait in faith. Your life, Christian, is a life of waiting in faith. Don't be confused when it actually happens. Take up faith, endure, work out your love, work out your hope in Christ. You know, one way we do this, one way we wait in faith is that we, we show up every week as a church. We show that we're not crazy. We come together as the church and we come to the Lord's table, this wonderful ordinance called the Lord's Supper. Because in the supper, we acknowledge that the same Christ who gave his body and his blood is the same Christ in whom we hope and for whom we wait. This is our reality. So church, we who have received the word, who work hard in the Lord, who wait for the Lord, we get to now come forward together to the Lord in the supper. So let's pray and we'll do that. Our great Father in heaven, we uh, give you praise as the God who has uh, chosen us, who has saved us in Christ, who has empowered us in the Holy Spirit. We do pray now that even as we come to your table, we pray that you would give us uh, the great blessing of conviction of sin. We pray that uh, any dark areas of our heart that have been hidden from our own eyes would be revealed to us, that the light of your gospel would shine into those dark places and reveal uh, ways and areas in which we need to repent. And we pray that we would find new joy in Christ. We pray that the depth of our sin would uh, point us to the depth of your mercy for us. We pray that this would be an occasion where we grow in faith by the power of your spirit, that you would be, um, you would be glad in us and we'd be glad in you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.